0: Hello and welcome to the Film Jerk Podcast. I'm your host, Edward Havens, publisher and editor of Filmjerk.com. Thank you for listening today. If you like what you hear and you haven't done so already, please make sure to rate and review the show on your favorite podcatching source. Good reviews and ratings are amongst the most effective way for an independent podcast like this one to break away from the pack, and you can even do it while you're listening to this episode. On this episode, we'll be taking a look back at the career of one of the most prolific filmmakers in Hollywood in the 1980s who never actually made a movie or ever even existed. We're going to call this episode, Who in the Hell Was Alan Smithy and Why Did He Make So Many Bad Movies? But before we get to Alan Smithy and his cavalcade of crap, I wanted to tell you about a new movie I saw last week that fits into the theme of this podcast. Not this episode specifically, but the overall theme of talking about movies of the 1980s. The name of the movie is New York Ninja, and it was released this past Tuesday on Blu-ray from the specialty video label Vinegar Syndrome. Now, this isn't a commercial. I'm not getting paid to talk about it, and I'm not going to direct you to a special link on the Vinegar Syndrome website that'll earn me a commission if you buy it from them, because I don't do that. But if you love 80s movies and you're listening to this specific podcast, I suspect you do. And this movie is one you might want to keep an eye out for. Now, the movie itself is not that good. It tells the story of an average Joe in New York City in the 1980s who becomes a crime-fighting vigilante after his pregnant wife is murdered, and the police are powerless to solve the crime. He isn't out to solve every crime. He just wants to kill the people responsible for taking his wife and unborn child away from him. You can understand that and sympathize with it. We all can. The performances are pretty bad, and too many story beats are bad things that happen to people out of sheer stupidity. More than once in the film, a woman or two women find themselves being attacked by the bad guys because they get into a car when they've left the windows down. Now, the movie, by the first incident... Has already established the city as a pretty dirty and crime-infested place, so why are these women parking in unsavory areas and leaving all of their car windows down all the way for any amount of time? But there are a few things that make this movie worth checking out. The first is the vocal talent they've assembled to voice the characters. You see, this movie was shot all throughout New York City in 1984 and then abandoned by the filmmakers shortly thereafter. The negative for the film sat untouched on the proverbial shelf for more than 35 years until someone at Vinegar Syndrome discovered it while doing an inventory of the elements that they had in their possession. Based on a scene at the end of the film, it looks like the filmmakers may have had a distribution deal with 21st Century Distribution, but for whatever reasons, it never happened. As regularly happens in the film industry, when a company goes bankrupt, the bankruptcy court will put all of their assets on sale, Sometimes one company will buy all of the bankrupt company's assets, while sometimes one company will only purchase the most desirable assets at a premium price, and another company will buy up whatever is left. And then that company goes bankrupt, and the cycle starts all over again. And then that company goes bankrupt, and that company goes bankrupt, and after 35 years, the film could have changed hands five or six times without anyone actually knowing who owns it anymore which is one reason why so many movies from the 1970s and 1980s aren't available on DVD or Blu-ray or streaming. No one knows where the elements are or who legally owns it anymore. When Vinegar Syndrome discovered the negatives for New York Ninja, there were no production notes and no sound recordings, so they decided to do their best to recreate the dialogue that is seen on screen. Once the negative was cleaned up, and let me say the film looks fantastic for a low-budget indie movie that's been sitting untouched for three and a half decades, Vinegar Syndrome hired some of the better-known B-movie actors of the decade to re-loop the dialogue, including Michael Berryman, Leon Isaac Kennedy, Ginger Lynn, Lene Quigley, Cynthia Rothrock, and as the New York Ninja, Don the Dragon Wilson. Come on already, that's insane! But what I love most about the movie is that it is a newly rediscovered time capsule for a time and place in the city I love and never got to experience firsthand. Not that I'm necessarily romantic for dilapidated and dirty graffiti strewn subway cars and areas of the city that look like post-war Vienna in 1946, but for how original director John Liu and his cinematographer took some care in how they captured the city in its splendor and disgrace. From the shots of the twin World Trade Center towers and the Statue of Liberty covered in scaffolding when it was going under refurbishment, to the long-gone movie theaters and businesses that once dotted Times Square, this is the New York City that other movies shot in New York in the same time frame just did not capture. As I said before, New York Ninja was released on Blu-ray last week, and Vinegar Syndrome is planning on an early 2022 theatrical release at theaters capable of playing 35mm film prints. They've already announced that it will be opening at the Music Box Theater in Chicago, and one suspect it'll probably also open at the New Beverly Cinemas in Los Angeles and the Metrograph Theater in New York City at the very least. If you love 80s movies, you're going to want to see New York Ninja. Okay, with that out of the way, let's get deep diving into the world of Alan Smithy. To get to Alan Smithy's career in the 1980s, we have to make a stop. In 1936... 1960 and 1968. For many years, the Directors Guild of America had a rule about their members using a pseudonym for their credit on a film. That rule? You just can't. The Directors Guild was founded in 1960 when the Screen Directors Guild, founded in 1936, merged with a competing guild, the Radio and Television Directors Guild. The Directors Guild, henceforth to be referred by its most oft-used moniker, the DGA, is a craft union that represents directors and members of a directorial team, which includes, depending on whether it's for a movie or a television show, or for projects shot on location or on sound stages, assistant directors, unit production managers, stage managers, associate directors, production associates, and location managers. The DGA works with various film and television production companies to make sure their members have minimum compensation levels, health insurance, safe working conditions, and fighting for a director's right to have final cut on their film, the right or entitlement of a director to determine the final version of their motion picture that will be shown in movie theaters and on home video. So when you hear about an incident on a set like the recent accident on the Alec Baldwin movie Rust, in which cinematographer Helena Hutchins was killed due to negligent firearms handling, or when assistant camerawoman Sarah Jones was struck and killed by a train while the production of Midnight Rider was setting up a shot on an active railroad trestle, more often than not, that movie was produced non-union to save money, and the director is often not a member of the DGA. In 1968, an unusual situation occurred where the DGA needed to come up with an amicable solution. Robert Toten, a director on such television shows as Bonanza and The Legend of Jesse James, was given the opportunity to direct his first feature film when Invasion of the Body Snatchers director Don Siegel suggested Toten to Universal Studios chairman Lou Wasserman as the director of Death of a Gunfighter, a western starring Richard Widmark, Lena Horne, and Carol O'Connor. Widmark and Toten would repeatedly clash over the direction of the movie, and Widmark, being the bigger name on set, was able to successfully lobby Lou Wasserman to remove Totten from the film. And replace him with Don Siegel. When the film was edited together, Siegel refused to take any kind of credit on the film as he felt that more than 75% of the final edit was footage directed by Toten. Toten refused directing credit because he was rightfully ticked off about being fired off the film. The DGA couldn't let a major motion picture from a major motion picture studio get released without a credited director and after a hearing where the board watched the movie and spoke to both Totten and Siegel, decided that the film did not represent either director's creative vision. What to do. What to do indeed. They decided to create a pseudonym that would be used by DGA guild members whenever they wanted their names removed from a project. The DGA board would agree on the name Al Smith. That was until they discovered they already had a director in the guild named, you guessed it, Al Smith. Then they thought of Al Smythe, with a single E at the end of the last name. But how to pronounce that? Smith? Smythe? Smithy? When someone in the room said Alan Smithy, they had found their pseudonymous persona. Death of a Gunfighter would be released in the theaters on May 8, 1969. It would enjoy some box office success, and somewhat ironically, critics were on board with the film and its quote unquote new director. Yes, I'm using air quotes when I say new. Smithy's direction would get positive notices from the New York Times and from a young film critic for the Chicago Sun-Times named Roger Ebert, who would note in his review of the film that Smithy, a name he was not familiar with, allows the story to unfold naturally. You see, to maintain the illusion, neither the DGA nor Universal Pictures made any mention to the press or the public About their decision for the final credit on the film. And for many years, the DGA would keep up the facade that Smithy might have been a real filmmaker. Ellen Smithy would only get credited on two films throughout the 1970s Fade In, starring Burt Reynolds and directed by actor and filmmaker Judd Taylor, which had actually been shot in the summer of 1967 but not allowed to escape from the vaults of Paramount Pictures until it was shown on some nascent pay cable movie channel in 1975, and 1978's The Barking Dog, a TV movie for which the name of the real director has been lost to time. But with the start of the 1980s, Alan Smithy would be employed no less than nine times as a director, plus one time as a producer and once as a second assistant director. Smithy would get credited with three films in 1980. Well, two, actually. One film, called Gypsy Angels, was shot in 1980 but abandoned for nearly a decade, resurrected in 1989 because of the ongoing popularity of one of its co-stars, Vanna White. Even though the film would also star Rat Packer Peter Lawford, Elizabeth Ashley, Richard Roundtree, and Wonder Woman's Lionel Wagoner, it would finally get released in 1992, but there are no records of who directed the original movie or who directed the additional scenes shot for it in 1989. City and Fear, starring David Jansen, Robert Vaughn, William Daniels, Susan Sullivan, and a very young Mickey Rourke, was a television movie about a news reporter who documents a series of murders of young women throughout Los Angeles. Judd Taylor, who had taken the Smithy name on his Burt Reynolds movie, Fade In, I just spoke about, would take the Smithy route here as well, when producers filmed several more scenes of extremely exploitive point-blank murders on screen after Taylor turned in his cut, without his consent or knowledge. Taylor would become the only filmmaker who would use the Smithy pseudonym on two films for their initial releases. Linda Stewart, who was hired to write a novel based on the idea would also have her name removed from the book when the publisher decided to have her book rewritten without her consent or knowledge to add those additional murders in. ABC TV would also find themselves in a similar situation with another movie the same year, when Paul Bogart, best known for directing shows like Get Smart and All in the Family, would request to have his name removed from Fun and Games, a Norma Ray-like drama featuring Valerie Harper as an ambitious factory worker who finds herself stonewalled for a promotion when she rejects the lecherous advances of her boss. Clif de Young, Max Gale, Peter Donat, and a young Joe Beth Williams also starred in the film. There's no information as to why Bogart wanted his name removed from the film, and since he passed away in 2012, it's not like we can ask. Alan Smithy would only show up once in 1981, but not as a director. Mickey Rose's Student Bodies was a parody of the slasher genre that had become popular in the previous few years thanks to films like Halloween and Friday the 13th. Richard Belzer, still a good dozen years away from being cast in his signature role as Detective Munch on the greatest television show ever created, Homicide Life on the Streets, stars as The Breather, who enjoys stalking his potential victims over the phone and really dislikes it when teenagers have sex hilarity ensues as the body count rises on screen, literally. Every time someone is killed on screen, a countdown appears on screen to show just how many people have been killed during the course of the movie to that point. But the film itself is so tame, in so much as there is no graphic violence or foul language or nudity, that the movie comes to a complete stop about halfway through. So, Some kind of authority figure sitting at a desk can explain to us that in order for the movie to achieve an R-rating, said film, quote, must contain full frontal nudity, graphic violence, or an explicit reference to a sex act, unquote. Since it is commonly accepted that R-rated movies are more popular at the box office, he continues, although that wasn't true in 1981 and it's still not true today, the producers have asked him for the opportunity to say, Fuck you. Then a slide comes on indicating that the film has been rated R by the Motion Picture Association of America before the movie continues, which on the surface seems really lame, but it's one of the few genuine moments of biting social commentary within the movie. Michael Ritchie, the director of such films as Downhill Racer, The Candidate, the original 1976 Bad News Bears, and Semi-Tough, was hired by Paramount Pictures to supervise the production and assist Rose, a writer on Woody Allen's Take the Money and Run, and Bananas, who was making his directorial debut, if Rose needed any help with how to direct. Now, various rumors say that Richie helped direct at least some of the film, or that he rewrote Rose's script, which we cannot confirm with either man since they've also both passed away. But for some reason, when the film was completed, Richie decided to take his name off the film and have his producer credit listed as Alan Smithy A-L-L-E-N, which makes no sense because the Alan Smithy rule was only a part of the DGA bylaws. The Writers Guild has a similar bylaw, but WGA members who want to remove their names from their screenplays were allowed to come up with their own pseudonym. As Chinatown screenwriter Robert Town famously did in 1984, when he had his writing credit for Greystoke, The Legend of Tarzan, Lord of the Apes, changed to his dog's name, P.H. Vazek. Ironically, the script for Greystoke would receive an Oscar nomination for Best Adapted Screenplay, which makes Towns' Dog the only canine to be nominated for a writing award. But I digress because it's a cool story, and Richie's producing credit wouldn't have been affected by either the Directors Guild or the Writers Guild bylaws. Student bodies would open in 628 theaters nationwide on August 7, 1981 and it would gross $1.58 million, which was not a bad number all things considered, but it wasn't great either. The movie would play out in theaters for another couple months, but it could only muster about $5.16 million when it finally left theaters in the fall. It wouldn't be until 1983 before Alan Smithy got another credit, and in this case, I don't blame the person for taking it. Now, I'm going to presume that most people who would be listening to a podcast about 80s movies know a thing or two about the horrible helicopter accident during the filming of the Twilight Zone movie that took the lives of actor Vic Morrow and two children who had been illegally hired to perform in this one scene. If you're not familiar with the Twilight Zone accident, go ahead and pause this episode now and go online to do a quick search about it. It shouldn't take you more than a couple minutes to read about all the onset failures that led to the accident. Okay, welcome back. That's pretty disturbing stuff. Anderson House was the second assistant director on that segment of the anthology movie, and was one of the few people on the crew who would have been privy to the dangers inherent in filming that scene, and the illegality of using real children during what should have been obvious to anyone with half a brain was going to be a very chaotic set. Now, I've been a second assistant director, never on a big Hollywood movie or on a movie with complex effects like fireballs being exploded on the ground as a helicopter hovered overhead, but I know just how valued the second assistant director can be during some situations and just how useless they can be considered during others. The decision to use real children instead of dummies or more diminutive stump doubles in the scene was made in pre-production, as the director had callously decided that using anything other than children would diminish his artistic vision. For Anderson House, this would be his first second AD job on a Hollywood feature, the kind of break that could make or break a career. So despite the fact that he was very much opposed to the use of child actors for the filming of this scene, and how much he tried to dissuade the producers of this segment of the movie to try and talk the director out of it, He would, when it came to that night in the shooting schedule, be rather keen to hide the use of the child actors. He would insist that everyone with a walkie-talkie on set that night referred to them as the Vietnamese, so fire and safety officials monitoring the shooting of the sequence would be kept in the dark about two young people's presence on set. After the completely avoidable deaths of three souls just for a couple of seconds of film, House would become a friendly witness for the prosecution when grand jury indictments were brought against the director and four other people involved in the decision-making that night, several months after the movie opened. House would testify about what he knew about everything that led up to the accident, and he would pay a price for that testimony. He, along with more than two dozen other people who worked on the film and provided testimony to the grand jury, would never work in Hollywood again. But House, as a member of the DGA at the time of filming, would submit his request to remove his name from the film shortly after the accident, and his request was granted. It would be the only time the Alan Smithy pseudonym would be used for an assistant director. The Smithy name would go dormant for another two years until he popped up twice in 1985. Appointment with Fear was being presented as from the man who brought you Halloween a coy dodge that was meant to confuse potential audiences, because that was in reference not to John Carpenter, the director and co-writer, but Mustafa Akkad, who had almost nothing to do with the making of Halloween outside of the $320 budget to produce it. We talked about Akkad and the Halloween series on our previous episode, number 63, A Brief History of the Halloween Movies. I hope you'll check it out after you're done with this episode if you have not yet listened to it. Appointment with Fear was your standard boilerplate horror film lacking in any imagination. A comatose man in solitary confinement is possessed by the spirit of an Egyptian god and uses astral projection to try and kill his infant son and the woman who is charged with raising the boy after the man kills his wife. Hard as I tried, I could not find a reason why director Ramsey Thomas would want to have his name removed from the film other than it really sucked. The other Alan Smithy film from 1985 was a medical school comedy, Stitches. The film had a somewhat recognizable cast, including former hardy boy Parker Stevenson, regular 1980s Clint Eastwood co-star Jeffrey Lewis, and Eddie Albert from Green Acres. Stevenson and two of his student buddies at a third-tier toilet of a medical school get off pulling pranks on their female counterparts. Originally filmed in 1983, it would sit on the shelf for two years, Until the producers were able to get International Film Market, a small independent distributor, to give it a regional release in Birmingham, Corpus Christi, El Paso, and Huntsville, Alabama, in August of 1985. Directed by Rod Holcomb, he would petition to have his name removed from the movie when the producers brought another director, William A. Levy, to re edit the film after Holcomb turned in his cut. 1986 was a choir year for Smithy, credited with only one movie. And boy, was this one potentially a big one. Let's Get Harry was an action drama about a group of friends who get together to rescue one of their own, who was kidnapped in Columbia, when a group of rebels attack a ceremony for the opening of a water line, being attended by an American diplomat. Now, first, let's talk about this cast. Gary Busey, Robert Duvall... Thomas F. Wilson, fresh off his star-making role as Biff Tannen in Back to the Future, Michael Scheffling, who had just made his name as the male lead in Sixteen Candles, Rick Rosevich from The Terminator, Glenn Fry of the rock band Eagles, who was making a second career for himself as an actor, thanks to a positively received performance on an episode of Miami Vice, and Mark Harmon, who had been appearing on St. Elsewhere for the previous three years. The movie was shot during the summer of 1985, first beginning with Harmon's scenes, as he, as Harry, would only be seen at the end of the film once Harry is rescued. But in January of 1986, as director Stuart Rosenberg was putting the final touches on his edit of the film, People magazine would announce Harmon as the sexiest man alive. All of a sudden, the producers were sitting on the next Mark Harmon movie, where Mark Harmon only appears in the final minutes of the film. They would want to make Harmon a more central character to the story against Rosenberg's wishes. So the producers would hire a new director to shoot some new scenes with Harmon to beef up his screen time. When Harmon arrived on set to discover he was being directed by someone other than his original director, he was told that the director was not available for the shoot. Well, of course Rosenberg wasn't available for the shoot. They didn't tell him there was an additional shoot. But once he did find out about it, he would quit the film and file a grievance with the DGA. And once Robert Duvall heard about what happened, he would voice his disappointment to the producers about the interference and would do very little to help promote the film. The distributor TriStar Pictures was not pleased with the final film and unceremoniously dumped it into 133 theaters in the Midwest, completely avoiding major cities like New York and Los Angeles On October thirty-first, nineteen eighty-six, the film would gross just under one hundred and forty-one thousand dollars. There would be two more Alan Smithy movies in nineteen eighty-seven. The first, Morgan Stewart's Coming Home, was a cute little comedy featuring John Cryer as the son of a Republican senator who, after being away in boarding school for several years, can't behave to help dad's campaign for re-election, even when he's being threatened with military school but ends up discovering Dad's top advisors are setting him up to take the fall for their campaign misdeeds. The film is awful, and one has to wonder how actors like Lynn Redgrave, Nicholas Pryor, and Paul Gleason got involved in this mess. And it's clear the movie is a schizophrenic mess. One director, Terry Windsor, shot the film for four weeks before he was fired, and another director, Paul Aaron, would spend six weeks reshooting much of Windsor's material as well as the rest of the movie that still needed to be shot. Windsor would lodge his complaint with the DGA, and upon watching the final film, the DGA decided that neither director had enough of a personal touch on the film to call it their own. I remember when we played Morgan Stewart's Coming Home at the Del Mar Theater in Santa Cruz, and I remember this was the first time I had ever heard the name Alan Smithy, or more specifically, was aware of the name Alan Smithy. I had never seen any of the previous mentioned movies, and I remember thinking that the film was so damn bad I was never going to see another movie made by this hack director. But I would soon learn the truth about Mr. Smithy. I'll get there in a minute. Smithy's other movie for 1987 was Ghost Fever, an alleged comedy featuring Sherman Hemsley from The Jeffersons. And for a comedy, the plot was insanely complicated. Two police officers in rural Georgia are sent to serve an eviction notice on a historic plantation. Two ghosts, a former owner of the plantation and one of his former slaves who worked the land, decide to do what they can to prevent the eviction. The officers, while exploring the house, discover a hidden lab that was used to experiment on and torture the slaves. Some freaky stuff starts happening in the house around the officers, which causes confusion to the two ghosts because they're not causing it. Then there's zombies and vampires and more ghosts in a boxing match where Sherman Hemsley from the Jefferson somehow beats a boxer played by former world heavyweight boxing champion Smokin' Joe Frazier and an unbelievable ending featuring the deaths of the two officers that will truly make your head spin. Oh, did I mention this was a PG family-friendly movie? How bad is Ghost Fever? Lee Madden, the director of Hells Angels 69, shot the movie in Mexico in the spring of 1984 with the title Benny and Buford Meet the Bigoted Ghost. While, much like the 1931 versions of Dracula, a Spanish-language version of the movie would be shot when the English-language version was not shooting, with different actors in a different plot that played up the class and societal differences between the two police officers instead of the racial differences within the English-language version except the films were shut down about halfway through production. When production resumed in the fall of 1985, Madden was out as director, and the Spanish-language version of the film would be abandoned. There are no records indicating who the new director was, but Madden would trigger a hearing with the DGA once the film was completed. Madden would win his appeal, and the Smithy name would be used on the film. Even after the film was completed in mid-1986, the producers of the film had a hard time selling it to a distributor. They would only get one bite, which they took, from a little New York City-based independent distributor, Merrimax Films, which needed movies to release in order to keep their pipeline active. Merrimax would strategize a regional release pattern for the film, starting with Atlanta, Dallas, Houston, Nashville, St. Louis, and Tampa-St. Petersburg on March 27, 1987. It would continue to move from territory to territory throughout the spring and summer, before finishing with an abbreviated 16-screen release in Los Angeles on September 11th, It would never play in New York City. The advertising, which attempted to lure fans of a certain ghost-themed blockbuster from three years earlier, promised Hemsley was hot on the trail of the ghost Too Bad to be Busted but the film would not be nearly as successful. Of the few papers that even ran a review of the film, Leonard Claddy of the Los Angeles Times, in a notice that wouldn't run in the paper until the following Wednesday, would start with, Ghost Fever is frighteningly bad, before dropping notice the film was from a fictitious filmmaker. In fact, Claddy's review of Ghost Fever was published three days after the same newspaper dropped a much longer article From him about Alan Smithy called The Strange, Faceless Tale of Alan Smithy, Man of Mystery, in which he broke down how the Smithy pseudonym system worked. Claddy would note in the 1987 Directors Guild bylaws, there was an entire section devoted to Alan Smithy on how the board goes about with the hearings when requested by a filmmaker, how they determine when a filmmaker is allowed to use it, how said filmmaker must forego any future compensation should they go this route and how the director, wishing to use the pseudonym, must refrain from discussing the film or their role in it afterwards. Also in the article, John Rich, an executive producer on the then-popular television show MacGyver, proclaimed it was he who had come up with the name Alan Smithy in 1969. But, as I will mention a little bit later, this was years before the mass public acceptance of the internet. So that article that had dropped the truth about Alan Smithy would have only been seen by those who read the Times' calendar section on Sunday, September 13, 1987. The final Smithy movie of the 1980s was 1987's I Love New York, written and directed by fine art photographer Gianni Bozzacci. Scott Baio starred as a semi-autographical version of his director, an Italian-American photographer struggling to make it in the New York City art world, who meets and falls in love with the daughter of a revered stage actor played by Christopher Plummer. If you've never heard of the movie, that's okay. It never got released into theaters and has only sporadically been available on home video from time to time. There were a few other instances of the use of the Alan Smithy name when a film that had been released in the theaters was re-edited for television without that director's input, and they would disown that version. When the 1984 version of Doom was edited into a two part, four hour movie for broadcast television in 1988, director David Lynch would not allow Universal or the network to credit him. The director of the broadcast version was Alan Smithy, while the screenplay, also written by David Lynch, would be credited to Judas Booth. When the 1989 Japanese movie Gunhead, directed by Masato Harada, was altered for its American release, Harada asked through the Japanese Directors Guild for the Smithy credit to be used and got it, even though he wasn't a member of the American Directors Guild, professional courtesy between fellow guilds. In the 1990s, Alan Smithy became even more prolific, credited with directing more than a dozen movies, including 1990's Catch Fire, actually directed by Dennis Hopper, the 1990 Teach Marin comedy The Shrimp on the Barbie the 1984 Showtime sequel to The Birds, and the fourth entry in the Hellraiser series, 1994's Bloodline. Smithy would even make his first foray into animation director in the decade when he was credited with an episode of the Mighty Ducks animated television series. And Oscar-winning director William Friedkin, ever the hothead, objected to the version of his 1990 film The Guardian that was edited for cable television and called for a slightly altered moniker, Alan Von Smithy. Lord knows why he needed to have the Vaughn part added. Michael Mann would ask for the Smithy name to be used on two of his movies when they were edited for television, 1995's Heat and 1999's The Insider. Alan Smithy would officially pass away in 1999 thanks to a pair of dreaded diseases, the internet and Joe Esterhaus. Before the internet became a thing in most people's lives, the truth about Smithy was passed along in hushed whispers between friends who had heard from other friends who had heard from other friends about this crazy rumor coming out of Hollywood. Because, really, how the hell could one person keep getting hired over and over again when they could only make the lousiest of movies? And unless you read those years-old articles like the Leonard Claddy one I mentioned earlier, That's all they were. Rumors and whispers. One person who would have a first-hand source of that kind of whisper campaign was Hollywood screenwriter Joe Esterhaus. By 1995, he was one of the hottest screenwriters in Hollywood. After getting his start writing the script for Sylvester Stallone's Fist in 1978, Esterhaus' career really took off with his second screenplay, 1983's Flashdance, which became an unexpected smash hit. 1985's Jagged Edge with Glenn Close and Jeff Bridges was another hit, as was 1992's Basic Instinct, for which he earned $3 million to write. He continued to earn massive paychecks to write movies such as 1993's Sliver, 1995's Jade and Showgirls, and 1997's One Night Stand. He was the king of the sexy and the sleazy, but what he really wanted to do was write comedy. So he would write a comedy called Burn, Hollywood, Burn, and he would take a Writers Guild minimum to get the Walt Disney Company to make it under their more adult Hollywood Pictures banner. Eric Idle would star as a filmmaker named Alan Smithy, who after years of making lousy movies is finally given the chance to make a big-budget movie called Trio, starring Jackie Chan, Whoopi Goldberg, and Sylvester Stallone. Once the film is completed and Smithy churns in his final cut, the studio takes the film and recuts it, prompting Smithy to want to remove his name from the film. But since Alan Smithy is the name the DGA uses as a pseudonym, he has no other recourse than to break onto the studio lot, steal the negative, and go on the run threatening to burn the film. Alongside the third funniest Python, the film also stars Ryan O'Neill, Chuck D. from Public Enemy, Coolio... Stephen Tobolowski and for some damn reason Harvey Weinstein, but not playing himself. The film also features cameos from Chan, Goldberg, and Stallone, former Paramount studio president and producer Robert Evans, Billy Bob Thornton, Larry King, Lethal Weapon writer Shane Black, former Paramount vice president of production and variety editor Peter Bart, and screenwriter Joe Esterhaus. The $10 million movie was directed by Arthur Hiller, whose CV included The Out-of-Towners, Plaza Suite, Silver Streak, and The In-Laws, and was nominated for an Oscar for directing Love Story in 1970. But by 1997, he had been on a long time losing streak, so this was a chance to create something new and fun and exciting for a studio. But when Hiller turned in his final cut of the film to Disney, they didn't like the film and allowed Esterhaas, who also produced the film, to recut the film. When the director saw the Esterhaas cut, he went to the DGA to have his name removed from the film, which made Burn Hollywood burn about a filmmaker named Alan Smithy who can't remove his name from that movie because the only pseudonym he can use is Alan Smithy, an Alan Smithy film. Disney would take the whole meta thing one step further by renaming the movie an Alan Smithy film Burn, Hollywood, Burn, when it was time to release it into 19 theaters on February 27, 1998. But you can't accuse Disney of burying the movie. Amongst those 19 screens opening the film were three of New York City's most prominent theaters, the City Cinema, the Lincoln Square Cinemas, and the Village Cinemas, and in Los Angeles at the AMC Century City 14 and the Lemley Sunset Five in West Hollywood. Disney would buy full-page ads in the New York Times and the Los Angeles Times to promote the film, and included what appeared to be positive blurbs about the film from such critics as Martin Grove from The Hollywood Reporter and Stephen Farber of Movie Line Magazine. But after three days, the film would only gross $28,992, and Disney would stop tracking it after the end of the week, with a final reported box office grand total of just $45,779. And, as of November 2021, the film has an 8% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, with the two contemporary positive reviews coming from Farber and Mick LaSalle of the San Francisco Chronicle, as well as a 2006 review from a website called Combustible Celluloid. With the release of Burn Hollywood Burn, the DGA found itself with a new problem. What to do when a director wants to take their name off a film? since the cat was fully out of the bag about Alan Smithy. They decided to wait until the situation came up again to decide. It would not be a long wait. Just two months later, in April 1998, Walter Hill, the director of 48 Hours and a producer on the first three Alien movies, began directing a science fiction horror film called Supernova. Supernova had been developed with Australian filmmaker Jeffrey Wright, director of the early Russell Crowe drama Romper Stomper, But Wright would leave the project due to the typical creative differences two months before the film was supposed to begin shooting. You see, Wright wanted to shoot the entire movie in zero gravity, not unlike the capsule scenes in Ron Howard's Apollo 13. This proposition would have been, as you can imagine, quite expensive. And when Wright walked, so did his lead actor, Vincent D'Onofrio. Jack Scholder, a director of A Nightmare on Elm Street 2 and The Hidden, was hired to direct but he would clash with MGM studio head Frank Mancuso, and he would leave the project almost as quickly as he came aboard. Worried that an impending Screen Actors Guild strike would materialize that summer, the studio wanted to get the film completed as quickly as possible. James Spader, who had been hired to replace D'Onofrio, lobbied for Walter Hill, and Hill would come aboard, provided he could tinker around the script a bit. Shooting absolutely needed to begin in April. And Hill would get the production going on schedule, but he would butt heads with United Artist President, Lindsey Duran, who was rather fond of the original script. But halfway through the production, the studio started to cut the budget. Planned scenes were cut out by the studio days before they were scheduled to shoot, leaving Hill and his team scrambling to try to find a way to get the information those scenes contained to move the overall story forward back into the story. Shooting would end in July 1998, and Hill would spend the rest of the year editing the film together, while he waited for James Cameron's special effects house Digital Domain to complete the outer space effects. In early January 1999, MGM scheduled a test screening of the film against the wishes of the director, who voiced his concerns that the screening would be a complete disaster due to the number of missing effects shots. He would also request a few weeks and a million and a half dollars to shoot some reshoots to tighten up some of the story issues that came up while editing the film. The studio would refuse and ran the test screening as planned. And, just like Hill warned, the screening was an absolute failure. The day after the screening, Hill tried to set up a meeting with Frank Mancuso about the screening, but Mancuso refused to meet with the director. Hill told the producers that he would not return to work on the film until he could have a meeting with Mancuso. Mancuso told the producers he wouldn't meet with Hill until Hill returned back to work. So Hill quit the project and filed a grievance with the DGA. MGM, who already had $60 million in the film, called up Jack Shoulder and asked him to come in to re-edit the film. The studio would also spend $2 million for Shoulder to shoot some new scenes, To compensate for some of the scenes, he would take out of Hill's cut of the film. He would also be given the opportunity to have a new score composed and recorded for his cut. Once Shoulder completed his work on the film and Digital Domain delivered the rest of the effects work missing from Hill's cut of the movie, MGM ran another test screening, which scored just a bit better than the original test screening. But between the scheduling of that screening and the running of that screening, Frank Mancuso was let go of the company, and the new executives felt the scores weren't good enough to move forward with that cut. They would call Walter Hill up and ask him to come back to the film. Hill said he would do it if he was given $5 million to shoot the footage he originally wanted to shoot before the first test screening. The new executives decided instead to put the film on the proverbial shelf. A few months later, the new executives would call on MGM board member Francis Ford Coppola to supervise yet another edit of the original footage. Coppola would be given a million dollars to do some work, which included digitally adding the faces of James Spader and Angela Bassett onto the bodies of two other actors during a weightless sex scene. Except when the studio ran a test screening of the Coppola cut of the film, it would score even lower than either Hill's cut Or shoulders cut. So the studio decided to just cut their losses and release the Coppola cut of the film, scheduling it for release on January 17, 2000. When the final edit of the film was completed, the DGA would screen two versions of the movie Hill's version, with the missing effects added in, and Coppola's version. The DGA agreed that Hill's vision of the film had been severely compromised and would allow him to remove his name from the film but what name would he use? Shoulder and Coppola wouldn't take credit, and the Guild had already officially retired the Alan Smithy moniker. So for the first time in DGA history, the director removing their name from a project got to choose the name of the director that it would be credited under. Hill would choose Thomas Lee. Since then, there are only two known instances of a member of the DGA removing their name from a film and using a new pseudonym. In 2015, Millennium Entertainment would release Accidental Love, a romantic comedy with Jessica Beale and Jake Gyllenhaal that had originally been shot by Silver Linings playbook director David O. Russell under the titled Nailed back in 2008. The problems with the making of that film could fill an entire podcast episode on its own. Suffice it to say that after numerous budget issues, that caused the production to repeatedly shut down and start back up again multiple times, Russell would leave the project in 2010, and the film would be credited to Stephen Green. The $26 million film finally got released in 2015, first on VOD in February, before opening in 10 theaters the following month. It would gross a paltry $4,500. A year later, first-time director G. Malik Linton removed his name off the Keanu Reeves-Anna de Armas thriller Exposed when distributor Lionsgate re-edited the film to emphasize Reeves' police officer character after failing to realize the film they were financing was a bilingual drama that focused on child sexual abuse, mass incarceration, police violence, and violence against women at the hands of those the public used to entrust to protect them. The $6 million film would only get a token theatrical release, earning a bit more than $260,000 at the box office. But even though the Alan Smithy name was retired by the DGA in 1999, it still gets used occasionally by directors of independent films who are not bound by the DGA bylaws. Those films include a Kiefer Sutherland movie called Woman Wanted, which was actually directed by Kiefer Sutherland, and a Dutch film called Eep! in which Rita Horst took Ellen Smith as the pseudonym for her film. Thank you for joining us. We'll talk again in two weeks when episode 65, The Orphans, is released. These are movies that were released by an entity for whom this movie was their sole theatrical release. Remember to visit this episode's page on our website, FilmJerk.com, for extra materials about Ellen Smithy and his career. The Film Jerk Podcast has been researched, written, narrated, and edited by Edward Havens for idiosyncratic entertainment. Thank you again. Good night.